And uh, Lord, help us be attentive to the things that you want to show us through your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. As we enter into Jeremiah chapter 2, it's been a couple weeks, of course, uh, because of Thanksgiving Eve. And then last week, uh, we went through the Israel slides. And I hope that you were blessed by that. But here is Jeremiah as he begins his ministry in about 640 B.C. He begins his ministry during the reign of Josiah. Now, Josiah, the king of Judah, keep in mind that at this time, the 10 northern tribes had gone off into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, uh, and they uh, have been taken away captive. But Judah has been preserved during this time. And you recall that as we're going through Isaiah, that we read about how Hezekiah, when he was the king of Jerusalem uh, and of Judah, that the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem. They're going to destroy Jerusalem. But then the Lord brought an angel to the, and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So God delivered Jerusalem at that time. And it's during that time, in about 720 B.C., to about 609 BC for for just about 100 years, you see this transition going on from the Assyrians declining in power. And there's kind of this struggle between the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Ethiopians. And then also there's another empire that's beginning to rise to power, and that is the Babylonians. So they're kind of struggling, you know, to see who's going to be the dominating world power, which would be really uh, determined in about 609 BC when Babylon would show that they would defeat Egypt. They, they were the ones that the world dominating power. Uh, the first wave of captivity in Judah would take place in 605 BC. But we do know that during this transition that Manasseh was the king of Judah. And Manasseh reigned for 55 years. He was a terrible king, as most of you know. He had implemented every kind of occultic kind of practice, uh, every kind of false worship. Uh, he was one that uh, was promoted all kinds of immorality, which would be included in the false worship, the wooden groves and, and, uh, and high places where the people went and worshiped and committed immorality. They were even burning and sacrificing their own children in the arms of Moloch in the Gehenna Valley. So Manasseh really plunged uh, Judah deep into sin, idol worship, every kind of wickedness and idolatry. Um, and the Lord would come along and say, because of the sins of Manasseh, that Judah's going to go off into captivity. But after Manasseh, his death, his son Josiah comes on the throne. He comes on the throne when he's only eight years old. And when he was in his 12th year of his reign, what happens is, is he begins to put away those wooden groves and those high places. And the Lord's really beginning to stir his heart. In the 18th year of his reign, he gives the order to clean the temple up because Manasseh had brought idols into the temple. He closed the temple off. And so what Josiah does is he gives the order, let's clean up the temple. And when they did, they found a copy of the book of the law. And Helkiah, the priest, 
comes and reads it to Josiah. Josiah's heart is quickened. And that really is an amazing story that we read about in 2 Kings in about chapter 23, 24. Because as you read it, you realize that there wasn't even a Bible. There wasn't God's word that was in the land for so long. And they find a copy of it in, in the temple under all the trash. And they read it. And Josiah, his heart was, was you know, pierced with the word of God. It, it, and he tore his clothes and he said, we have sinned. And he begins reforms in the land. So Jeremiah comes on the scene during the reign of Josiah. Now, Isaiah, that we went through the book of Isaiah before Jeremiah, that he was reigning and he would end up in his ministry. He was reigning during the time of Hezekiah, but he would also continue his ministry when Manasseh became the king. And Manasseh had him sawn in half. So he is martyred uh, by Manasseh about 60 years pass and here comes Jeremiah on the scene. There's reforms that take place as Josiah restores true worship. Um, he, he celebrates the Passover. But as we read here, during this time, it was more reforms than it was true revival. Because as we read it here, we're going to see that Jeremiah, given the word of the Lord, that the Lord says it's all superficial. Um, that your hearts really aren't right with me. There was a form of religiousness, but there wasn't real relationship with the Lord. So the Lord is calling them back to him. And, and we're going to see that as we go through and finish chapter 2 and into chapter 3. So here is Jeremiah during difficult times, right before they would go off into captivity by the Babylonians. And as we began chapter 2, you might recall that Jeremiah, he's giving 10 pictures that will expose the sins of the people. And in verses 1 through 8 that we saw last time, if few weeks ago, he gives this picture of God's people being an unfaithful wife. Um, and, and Jeremiah continues to do that here in this book. In Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, they have broken my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So he says to them, the Lord, to his people, you've committed spiritual idolatry. You've played the harlot. And God is grieving because there was a time, you know, in their history that they were devoted to him. But they abandoned the true God for man-made gods. And so God was asking them, what have I done? What have I done? Have I failed you in any way? And he hadn't because he had been faithful to bringing them into the promised land, blessing them and, and, and being a God to them. And the land was a good land. He blessed the families. And yet in all of that, what God had done for them, they had forsaken the Lord. And they didn't remember what the Lord had done for them. You know, sometimes, and, and I got to be careful, we think that, oh, Christmas, you know, the Christmas story again and the Christmas songs, and we go through it every year. We need to remember what God has done for us, that he loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son. And the Christmas story is really a magnificent story as we're so familiar with it. We can probably quote Luke chapter 2, that in those days that it came to pass, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And we know the Christmas story, but I pray it never loses its impact on our hearts. That God would care enough about us to send his son to be born as the babe of Bethlehem. And he came for a purpose, and that is that he's the savior of the world. 
and that he would grow up and he would go to a cross right outside of Jerusalem and die for you and for me. We need to remember what the Lord has done for us. And we need to keep remembering his faithfulness and his goodness to us. And so he says, you guys have forgotten and and you're like an unfaithful wife. And not only is he addressing the people of Judah, but he's also addressing the leaders. In verses 9 through 13, you're like a broken cistern. Uh, A cistern is just a a, a, a cavity that's, uh, you know, carved out of the rock so when the water comes, it fills up that, that cavity. They didn't have plumbing like we do today. So cisterns were very, very important in ancient days. Matter of fact, if you go with us to Israel on a tour, it seems like we see cistern after cistern and what they dug and pretty amazing how they did that to collect water. It was their lifeline. And he says that you're like a broken cistern that can't even hold water. It's muddy and broken and cracked and, and it ends up all seeping out. And we know that it is Jesus that gives the invitation to you and to me to come drink of me. Come drink of me of the living waters. And out of your innermost will flow torrents of living water if you thirst. And yet we can go to the world and drink of the world's water and think it's going to satisfy us, but it doesn't. So you're like a broken cistern. And then in verses 14 through 19, you're, you're in bondage is what you are. And God had redeemed them, but yet they were ones they were in bondage because they had put their trust in other nations and not in the Lord. And, and, and so he, he's reminding them of that. You're in bondage because you are going to those nations that are not going to help you. And your own wickedness is going to correct you. Your backsliding rebuke you. And it reminds us that there is consequences to sin. And you see, as they were turning to that which could not help them, the Lord was pleading with them, turn to me, turn to me. And yet they refused to do it. And so we left off at verse 20. Let's read verse 20 of Jeremiah chapter 2. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down plain harlot, so you're like a stubborn animal and, and like a harlot, like an unruly animal and one that is unfaithful, lying in places you shouldn't be, on the high hills. And, and we talked about that as we ended our teaching a couple of weeks ago in Jeremiah, that they were there playing the harlot as this, uh, this picture is given once again. You're in those places you shouldn't be. And you're turning away from me. In verse 21, as we see the fifth picture that he gives. He says, yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. So here, number five, you're like a degenerate vine. Now you might recall that in Isaiah chapter nine, that Isaiah gives them this this uh, story of uh, an analogy of that that my people God says are like a vineyard a vineyard that was uh, placed in is the choicest vines it was good soil water was there uh, there was a press that was there there was a tower that was there a wall around the vineyard and it was to produce good fruit but it ended up producing bad fruit that's what he likened the nation to and here we see it again through Jeremiah. You're like a degenerate vine. Uh, you're like a, a vineyard that was 
to produce good fruit. You are ones that everything's been given to you to be one that is one that produces that which is good, to bring forth fruits of righteousness. But they didn't. They were a degenerate vine is what they're likened to. Very much what Isaiah was speaking about in chapter 9. And of course, when you go to the gospel narratives of Luke chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 22, you remember that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, he addressed the religious leaders and he said, that you know that as he told them the parable the wicked vine dressers that that the vine dressers would uh, beat the servants that came to to take back to the master what belonged to him uh, some of the fruit and and yet they wouldn't do it and then it would be the owner of the vineyard sent his son and they killed the owner's son and uh, and they knew the religious leaders that Jesus was talking about them. Jesus is saying, you're going to kill me. I'm the father's son, the owner of the vineyard. And what did the owner do? Well, he took away that vineyard from the vine dressers and gave it to another. And as the religious leaders, they heard that, they knew that Jesus was pointing to them. They said, not so. Jesus says to you and to me later on, just uh, the next day, the next night, he said to his disciples that I am the vine and abide in me. And as you abide in me, you're going to produce forth fruit. As you just continue to abide in me, you're going to bring forth much fruit. And the Lord desires for you and I to produce good fruit in our lives. And the key to do that is we need to abide in him, which means to be connected to him. Stay close to him, connected to him. And Jesus would say to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. You see, we can try to have a form of religiousness. We can try to do things out of our own flesh, but we're not going to produce real lasting fruit. It is only by abiding in Jesus Christ. And as we abide in him, he will produce the fruit in our lives that he desires, the fruit of righteousness. And so stay close to him, stay connected to him. So all these lessons that we see of the vineyards and, and the wicked vine dressers and the vineyard that was supposed to produce good fruit, but it didn't. And Jesus coming along and then saying that I am the vine and we are to be ones connected to him. In verse 22, we read, for though you wash yourself and with lye, let me read it again, and, and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. So in verse 22, number six, he gives this picture of the defiled body. Only Jesus can wash away sin, but God wanted their hearts, not just religious activity. And God wants our hearts. And as we live in this world, you know, as Christians, at the end of the day, I don't know how you can feel, but I can feel dusty. You know, just the dirt of the world, all the stuff around this and, and the things that you hear. And it's very important that we wash ourselves with the water of the word. So we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ as we come to him and we're born again by the spirit of God. But as we're living for him, you know, the world around us, do you ever finish a day and you just go, yuck? Or, you know, the stuff that you hear around this. And, and certainly, you know, we do. And I need to be in the word of God. I need to be washed with the water of the word. Jesus said in John chapter 15 that you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you. 
So be in the word of God. Be refreshed by the word of God. And here he says, you're a defiled body. You know, you're trying to wash yourself with soap and lye, but your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. And then in verse 23, how can you say I'm not polluted? I have not gone after the Baals. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary, that is a camel, breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves, and in her mouth they will find her. Verse 25, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said there is no hope for, no, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. So here is the seventh picture that Jeremiah gives in this chapter. Gives a picture of an animal in the desert. Like a, a lost camel looking for an oasis. Or a donkey that's in heat, you know, running here to there for a mate. They had given up hope. They had given up hope. And in that, they continued to turn to those false gods. You know, one of the places, I don't know if we showed it to you last week, but in John chapter 5, there in Jerusalem, was the pool of Bethesda. And it was a pool that had five porches. And you read in John chapter 5 that there was a man that was there that had an infirmity for 38 years. He, he couldn't walk. And there was the belief if the there was a stirring of the water that they believed that an angel touched the water and the first one in the water was healed. And so Jesus walks by and he sees this man. He has a infirmity 38 years, couldn't walk. He's there at that pool. And he asked the man, do you want to be made well? And the man says, but I have no one to help me into the water. Somebody always beats me into the water. And Jesus looked at him and said, pick up your bed and walk. You know, oftentimes that I think what can happen is that the Lord says to you and to me when we're going through difficulties or we're down, we're discouraged or we feel hopeless or we're confused or we're anxious, the Lord comes along and he says, do you want to be made well? I want you to hear my heart on this. Because we are here to serve you and to help you. The body of Christ is here to strengthen you. There's safety in the multitude of counsel. Yes, we are here to do that. But I think oftentimes the Lord will speak to our hearts and say, do you want to be made well? Will you turn to me and trust in me and trust in my word? And we make excuses. Well, I have no one, no one to help me. You know, everything's against me. And I'm going to try to figure out in my own way. I'm going to try to do it in my own plan. I'm going to, to come up in my own way. And the Lord's going, don't you want to be made well? Pick up your bed and walk. If we would just turn to him and trust in him and allow him to work in our lives. And it takes real discernment and prayer to allow the Lord and waiting on him to do that in our lives. And perhaps just maybe that there's somebody here that tonight that the Lord's been speaking to you. Do you want to be made well? I, I want to help you if you would allow me to do that. Allow me to touch your life, to encourage you, to instruct you, to bless you, to guide you, to comfort you. Because he wants to do that, that work in our lives. But so oftentimes we look to other things and, and other ways rather than the Lord's way. And in verse 29, we see the ninth picture that is given here as we read um, in verse 29. Uh, why will you plead with me? 
You have, uh, have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened your children. They have received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets. So in verse 29, the disobedient children, I'm going to back up to verse 26 because I missed that because that's the eighth picture, disgraced thief, that as a thief is ashamed when he is found out. So the house of Israel is shame. And then their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you are my father and to a stone you gave birth to me. Isn't that ridiculous? Going up to a tree and saying, you're my God, you're my father and a stone you gave birth to me for they have turned their back to me and not their face but in the time of their trouble they will say arise and save us but where are your gods that have made for yourselves let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble and according to the number of your cities are your gods old judah so here is a thief that is caught in this this he's embarrassed he's ashamed they sinned against the lord so much that it was so evident and in their time of trouble they would Say to their false gods, arise, save us. And those gods never helped them. Those gods never, one example in the Old Testament, do you ever see those false gods helping the children of Israel? Not once. And that's something that he's going to say over and over again. Don't you see that they can't help? Here you are speaking to this tree and saying he's a father and the stone that, you know, that you gave birth to me. You carry these idols around. You prop them up. They can't help you. You know, the vanity of going to these false gods that are not going to help you. And now verse 29, as I read to you in verse 31, we continue, O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore you have also taught the wicked women your ways also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents and i have not found it by secret search but plainly on all these things yet you say because i am innocent surely his anger shall turn from me behold i will plead my case against you because you say i have not sinned they were like disobedient children god had chastened them so many times, but they refused to turn away from their sin and change their ways. And they were even blaming God and complaining against him. I have had a few people that have sinned against God, blatant sin. And when they're experiencing the consequences of it, they'll blame God. For example, if they're in some kind of adulterous relationship and then their marriage blows up. Why did God do this? Well, you sinned. And you committed sin. And the consequences of sin happens. And that's what we need to remember. And Paul would say, you know, God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. But whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And that's a spiritual law for every single one of us. And if you reap into the flesh of the flesh, you'll reap corruption. And if you reap of the, or sow into the spirit, that is, you'll reap into everlasting life. If you sow into the flesh of the flesh, you'll reap corruption. That is a spiritual law for every single one of us. None of us are exempt from that. And yet there are people that refuse to turn to the Lord, trust in the Lord, and, and follow after the Lord. And then they'll blame God because they're experiencing the consequences of sin and disobedience. And the Lord is saying, this is what's happening to you guys.
And then the 10th picture here, they were taken prisoner, verse 36. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your heads. That's a picture of being taken prisoner. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. Remember that Isaiah would say the same thing to them. Woe to the rebellious children of Israel, for you seek counsel, but not of me. You're going to Egypt. And, and Pharaoh's not going to help you. And those fast Arabian horses are not going to save you. And you need to turn to me. And coming to me in quietness will be your strength. Coming to me and then waiting on me. And then I want to work for you. I want to work on your behalf. But they refuse to come to the Lord and turn to him. And so here you're, you're trusting in these, these nations. Egypt, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help you. I want you to turn to me. I want you to trust in me. And, and think about it. Didn't he bring them out of Egypt? Remember he brought them through the wilderness and what was one of the reasons why they ended up 40 years in the wilderness? Because they weren't believing in the word of the Lord. They weren't trusting him. They were murmuring and complaining. They were saying, let's go back to Egypt. And the Lord's saying, I just delivered you from Egypt. You want to go back under bondage? I've given you the promised land. But they refused to take the promised land. They refused to trust in the Lord and his promises. And here it is at this time that they're still talking about making alliances with Egypt. The Lord had freed them from Egypt. Listen, Egypt is a picture of the world. He has brought us out of the world. And he's given everything to us that pertains to godliness in Christ Jesus. He's given us his word. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. And he wants to do so much. But there can be this temptation to align ourselves with Egypt. And we need to be careful. And we need to look to him and trust in him. And the Lord here is saying, turn back to me. Don't be taken prisoner. Because if you live after the world or go after the world's way, it will put you in bondage. You'll be in, like a prisoner to it. You know, there are people, the philosophy of the world is live for yourself. Be free. Do what you want to do. You know, be the one that, that lives your own way, make up your own mind, believe what it is that you want to believe, and they think that's true freedom. And as such a deception of the enemy, that brings them into bondage. The only true freedom that there is, is Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. It's belonging to him that we have true freedom. And we're free from the bondage of the world and the darkness of the world, deception of the world. So live for him. Listen, don't live for the world because you will be taken prisoner. Not because Pastor Jeff says so, because the word of God says so. So now as we move into chapter 3 for a few moments, we see that Jeremiah, his first message began in chapter 2. It's going to continue through the first five verses of chapter 3. Let's read it. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Isn't that amazing? He says, you've played the harlot again. 
You committed spiritual adultery as Jeremiah returned to this metaphor of marriage that he used in the first couple of verses of chapter 2. They have gone after other gods, have committed great immorality, as we've talked about. They went after those false gods and gave themselves wholeheartedly to them. And yet the Lord says, you've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me. Turn to me. That's incredible grace and and continued love. And instead of casting off his people, he calls them to return to him. That's grace. That's God's everlasting love. We're going to see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we continue reading in that chapter, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And we'll talk more specifically about that when we get to that verse in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. But God calls us to himself for us to surrender to him, to follow after him, to give our lives to him wholeheartedly. And then those times where there's backsliding, where there's a walking away from the Lord, where there's a pursuing of the idols of the world or the pleasures of the world. Listen, his love remains. His love remains. And his love is indescribable, unsearchable, unmeasurable. But he will always be calling you back. He will always be coming calling you back to come back home. We see that picture in the prodigal son, don't we? The son, he went after, you know, wasteful living and sinful living, spent all his money, ended up in the pig pen. And what happened? He comes back and the father ran to meet him to receive him. We see that in the scriptures that the Lord, there's always an invitation to come home, to come back. And maybe that means something to somebody tonight because what can happen is is that there are those who backslide and they think they can't come back. I have sinned. I, I failed. I falter. The Lord will never take me back. And he's ready for you to come home at any time. He's calling you to repent. Repent means change direction. Repent. We, we think of repent. That's such a harsh word. It's a wonderful word. That we can even repent to turn direction from where we're going and turn back to him. And he always calls us to do that. And he's always faithful to receive us. It has always come. And here it's amazing. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to me because I love you guys. And I want you to come back home. I want you to turn to me. And if that means anything to anyone here tonight, he's calling you to come home to come to him, to return to him. And lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, verse 2, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them, like the Arabian in the wilderness. And you have polluted the land with your harlot trees and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there have been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not uh, from this time cry to me? My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you 
were able. And so as he continues indicting them, that God caused the rains to stop, that they might cry out to him. Remember that in that covenant that he made with them, Deuteronomy chapter 28, that if you forsake me, then I'm going to dry up the land. The rain's not going to come. And, and the Lord would do certain things to try to bring them back. And he said, you'll end up eventually going off into captivity, which is going to happen. So the rains would stop. And it should have been a sign for them to repent and return to the Lord. But they didn't. They t- continued to turn to those false gods that couldn't help them. They refused to be ashamed. And yet it's God's desire that they cried it out to him. So now that concludes that message. And now in verse 6, it's a second message that he is giving to them. And he says that the Lord, and this is going to continue through chapter 6. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said, After she has done all these things, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. So Israel, the ten northern tribes up north, played the harlot. They were into idol worship big time. We've talked about that. And the Lord is saying, don't you see what happened to them? They, they've been off into captivity since 722 B.C. And it was a warning that God has given to Judah for the path that they were going down. Israel did wickedly, and you saw it, Judah. I called them to return to me, but they refused And you saw what happened to them going off into captivity. Verse 8, then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry, and she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not turn to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. So after God's long suffering and patience, you know, comes to an end, God brought Israel into captivity in the hands of the Assyrians. And Judah should have seen it and feared it. But the Lord, they didn't. They went down the same path. They went down the same path. It's amazing. Listen, we think, how could they do that? But we can watch people experience the consequences of their actions and and repercussions of turning away from the Lord and living in sin, and yet people will go down the same road. For some reason, thinking they're an exception and they'll experience the hardships and the consequences that that come with sin. Don't ever think that you're an exception or that God doesn't see or won't, you know, there won't be any consequences for sin. These lessons are here so we can learn. We can learn from past mistakes, but it doesn't have to be our own mistakes. And that's in a way, what he's saying, you should have learned from Israel's mistake. They went off into captivity, but yet you did not turn to me. It didn't have any effect. You've making the same mistakes. And, and these things are written for us in Scripture so we can learn from them. And we can know that there is consequences in sin and disobedience and not turning to the Lord. We see that over and over and over again. 
And then in verse 10, I think it's important for us, and it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Uh, we see even that reform came in, um, and yet for all her treachery, her sister Judah did not turn to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. They were pretending. You know, they came in pretense. There was a form of religious, there was reforms in the land. It came in the twelfth year of Josiah, cleaning the land of idol worship, but they had not turned to the Lord wholeheartedly. It was only in pretense since the Lord. They were putting on the spiritual facade is what they were doing. Sometimes people, you know, we talk to, and they want reforms in their lives. Well, I'll go to church, you know, have a little bit of religion, It'll help me and it'll help my kids. But it's all superficial. There's no giving their hearts to Jesus. It's religion. It's reforms, but it's not true relationship. It's not revival that takes place in our hearts. And that's what the Lord wants. He doesn't want us playing games with our Christianity and with our salvation. And we can put on the spiritual act. We can say amen. We can come to church. We can be involved, you know, in, in different things. But really, where is your heart? Where's my heart? Because this is a message for me. That I can get so complacent that I'm just going through the motions. And, and here he's saying, listen, you committed adultery, you know, with stones and trees. And, and with me... You did not give me your whole heart, but in pretense since the Lord. You got this form of religiousness, but it's not real. It was like the Pharisees. Remember Jesus when he was dressing the Pharisees? He said, woe to you. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're all polished on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. They were so boastful about their religious appearance that they thought they were righteous before God. But yet they weren't because they didn't have a heart for the Lord. I think that a lot of us, we know religious people. That they think they're a good person, but they don't have real relationship. What I hope and pray for us this Christmas season, and what I hope and pray for us, as we enter into a new year, that it would really be a heart that we would have towards the Lord. That, Lord, I want my heart to be towards you, to have a love for you, a devotion for you. I know that's my prayer. That's something that I've been really coming to the Lord. Oh, Lord, I don't want to, especially in this season of my life, Get comfortable and just go through the motions because that can happen very easily to me. Get complacent, get lethargic. But I want to have a heart for you. I just want to know you more. The prayer of, of Paul, he said, oh, that I may know you. And then, of course, at the end of his life, he says that I suffer these things, but, but I am persuaded that he'll, he'll carry me through these things because I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed it's him. I hope that we just take a minute. We're going to end here. Let's take a minute and just be like David. It says, Lord, here's my heart. Try me and test me. In the honesty of your heart, they say, Lord, is my heart really towards you or is it divided? Or is it towards the world? 
or is it given to other things? Is it just pretense? I'm kind of going through the motions, you know. I'm coming because my spouse wants me to or my parents want me to or my friends are here. Really, where's your heart with the Lord? I think it's a good thing to do right before we head into Christmas and to remember that the Lord is calling us to come. Come to him and set your heart upon him. And abide in him, love him, and enjoy him. And Father, that's what we do right now. We just come as we end this teaching. And and Father, I thank you for, as we go through these verses, so much is, you know, indictment against a nation that, that did not turn to you, turned away from you. But Lord, there's lessons for us here. And it, it's a loving father that's brokenhearted that is saying these things to his people that he loved. Return to me. Father, there are so many things that can take us away from you and distract us. And we begin to lose our devotion to you. We become distant. Oh, we can still come to church. We can sing the songs. We can, we can even read our Bibles. But our hearts are dry. Our hearts are far from you. We look towards the world. We entertain the world. We... Are not being sensitive to your voice. And Lord, this is for all of us. Because we get busy, we get distracted, all kinds of things come into our lives. We get anxious. We begin to try to figure things out without really coming to you. We try to plan and plot and without trusting in you and seeking you. This is a time of year, especially like two weeks before Christmas, where we can get very overwhelmed. So, Lord, I just pray that we just take a few minutes right now, put all the busyness aside, and, Lord, just come and present our hearts to you. That in the honesty of our hearts, we would say, Lord, here it is. I've been distant or... Lord, I feel dry or I feel anxious. You've been trying to speak to me. Do you want to be made well? But I haven't been paying attention. I, I've been so worried. I've been, whatever the case may be, just take a couple minutes. Give your heart to the Lord right now, wherever it might be. Lord, we just want to be quiet before you. Because in a few minutes, we're going to be leaving and going back home and getting ready to end the day and start tomorrow. But while you have us here, Lord, whatever state that we're in, you love us. May we always remember that. And you want to work in our lives. If that means to come back, to draw closer to you. That's your desire. Lord, we don't want to play games with our Christianity. We don't want to just have pretense.
putting on a facade, but Lord, to really know you. And I pray that's our, our real desire this Christmas season and New Year is to know you more. To Lord, to trust you more. To wash ourselves with the water of the word. To stand on your promises. To allow you to work in our lives. To wait on you when we need to wait. And not align ourselves with that which will not help us with the world, the ways of the world, the philosophy of the world that bombards us constantly, that we would wash ourselves with the water of the word. Lord, I pray you bless everyone here. And I thank you for your, just your unconditional love for us. And when you call us to repent, when you, when you chasten us, because it's all because of your love for us, to turn to you. And even if there's somebody here that needs to come home, you're saying come home, ready to receive you, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be renewed. Lord, do an incredible work this Christmas. May we just take that time every day to just slow down, be quiet before you, and to marvel at the incredible truth that you sent your son because of your love for us, the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God with us, and he will save his people from their sins. I thank you, Lord, for tonight. Take everyone home safely now. May we be encouraged in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?